0: Welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Caffey. Today, I have Sam Sepping, founder of Made In Head. He is a great contact of mine who I've met recently at an AI dinner. Fascinating history. Sam, why don't you give the audience a quick introduction to who you are, who you serve, and a little bit about your journey.
1: Morning, Marcus. Thank you very much for inviting me onto your podcast. Hello, everybody. My name's Sam Seffi. Yes, I've been in the IT industry about, it's closing on 30 years now, feels a long time. Currently today, I'm a radio presenter on a show where I do a business and technology program, and that's where I met Marcus recently as well. I also run several podcasts. My background prior to that, though, was I started my IT career as a techie at Microsoft in the early days. I think I was employee 20 in the UK. So in the days when actually they only had two products, Microsoft Word and uh, Microsoft Windows. They didn't even have Excel in those days. (laughs) Wow. You mean Methuselah? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So I, I remember going through, explaining to people what cut and paste was, drag and drop, showing them email, Ethernet, Windows that connected to a server, it was great fun. So that was the early days. I also was fortunate enough to work for a company called Netscape as a European product marketing director. Again, I remember showing somebody what a browser was and, and being told very clearly that will never catch on. And, and we're right. <laughs> <laughs> moving on in my corporate career, I worked for a company called MicroStrategy. They were one of the first big database data. Manipulation companies. It was called OLAP, online analytical processing, which was again a precursor to where we are today with big data. And uh, so, yeah, we will probably find out more about me as we move forward. But yeah, I've been in the corporate world and and startup world.
0: Excellent. I'd like to kick off with how you've seen technology and IT evolve from being a bunch of unwashed pizza eating sandal wearing engineers to being critical. And in fact, businesses, essentially all companies becoming IT companies, and technology becoming an IT enabler. What's that evolution been like to live through?
1: Um, I was going to say, plus ça change, plus la même chose, more things change, more they stay the same. But they don't in the case of IT, because in the early days, IT was a cost to the business. It was a bottom line, oh, okay, we've got to do this for trying to simplify information, automate processes that were there. But it was never a business-generating, revenue-generating good example. And I still think some companies don't do this. They don't have an IT director on the board. IT is still seen as a secondary to the main business sometimes. So the early days, yeah, I'd say IT was very much a cost to the business and it's evolved now. I mean, any business that you look at that's been disrupted, it's because IT's probably disrupted it. And the innovators dilemma is one problem that companies sometimes have if they're the market leader. And the other one is that you're know you getting short, nimble, quick startups are coming in and eating companies' lunch. So in two ways, companies now have to look at IT. And if they don't, they probably won't be here to look at it anyway. I was speaking
0: to Jay McBain last year, and he was saying that his research is showing that executives are spending 60% of their time on IT today, which is a huge amount of their day.
1: Yeah, it is. But then my wife's fortunate to be on the board of several PLCs, and she will tell me that IT is an, a line item agenda after they've covered off a host of other issues, and it's not the top issue. So... That's where it has to change. It should start with how are we treating customers? What's the customer experience? What's the interface look like? How are we processing? What's the delivery look like? Every touch point to the customer is an IT experience fundamentally. Or if you look at Jeff Bezos. There's a video from 1999 when he was asked, are you a, a web company? And he said, no, we're a customer experience company. And it just happens to be that we use the web as one channel and what happens to be that we have factories and warehouses and delivery carts you know and i spoke to somebody else this week from amazon they still have the mantra of customer first experience and it is the thing that enables it behind it
0: this is really interesting because i think it's kind of missed its chance it could have very easily been a route to the chief executive for that reason if they'd made the decision to get away from being technologists and really be focused on customer experience and customer enablement. Why do you think they miss that?
1: I think like all chief execs, they they know what they know. I think there's a generation thing. A friend of ours, Thomas Power, who we uh, both know well, still has the ability to go into boardrooms and show them how to use Twitter, how to use LinkedIn. You'll probably recall the days when CEOs still had a PA who typed everything up. I still know CEOs of large corporates who won't do their emails, who don't organize themselves. I'm not saying you have to have that, but they fundamentally look at IT as someone that they just have to deal with rather than embrace it.
0: I was at the Institute of Sales Management Fellows event last night, and a chap from Price Waterhouse put up a really interesting slide, which is off the back of the CSO Insights research report from last year. And 72% of senior executives across something like 16 or 1800 businesses worldwide said that AI was going to fundamentally change their business. Only 2% had done anything to implement it. And the executive director from Virgin Media made a really relevant point, which is that that's probably a generational thing, because as millennials are moving into positions of middle and senior management. 60% of middle managers will be millennials by 2020. Now, that's a hell of a demographic shift. And these people are familiar with tech. As they start to either get frustrated because there's nowhere to go because you have to wait for people to die or leave, then they'll leave and they'll set up on their own. And these are the sorts of organizations that I'm excited about because I think what they're going to do is they're going to make the complacent megalithic companies either sit up and prick up their ears uh, or they're going to annihilate them and they're going to be the next generation because i think there's always a bit of a lag where people hang on to what made them successful and they don't attack themselves so you're involved in tech crunch that must have been a fabulous wild west kind of environment where there were lots of people attacking
1: received wisdom what was that like, and why did you do it? Having done two successful startups of my own prior, I love the startup world. I'd come out of a corporate world, as I said. I'd gone fairly high up. And one of the things that TechCrunch, well, it was started by a guy called Mike Harrington in the USA, and I started the European version, was because I wanted to be able to go and see all these cool companies. You know, some of the companies now that we will we would heard of You know, I was talking to Spotify, Daniel Elk, I was talking to Nicholas Enstrom over at Skype, and just seeing the energy of these guys who were building companies that you look at and go, really, is this going to make it? Is this going to change? But at the time, there was genuine belief that these companies would change the world. And writing about it and meeting them and being able to run events around it, yeah, it was great. Last night was the Europas, the TechCrunch Europas, run by Mike Butcher. Again, if you look at it, you know, there's a host of 50 or 60 companies there last night. Their energy in that room was brilliant. They're all believing that they're going to change the world, make a difference. You've got investors there, you've got startups there, they're combining together. I just don't find that type of energy. I think a lady who we know, Nicholas Yershon, calls it intrapreneurs, people who should start little side projects within big corporates to try and build that same energy into the corporate world?
0: Well, it's really interesting. I've just finished the book, Loonshots, Shots. And one of the bits of advice that the author gives there is that the innovators should probably occupy another space so that they can create freely. And the soldiers, the people who do the franchise business can operate somewhere else, but you have to love them both equally. I think he uses a really good example of where Jobs essentially denigrated the people who were doing the core work around the Mac, and he wa- lauded the creatives, and it created a negative political landscape. But the environment of creativity within Apple, within DARPA, within Park, the Xerox innovation division they came up with so many of the ideas that are ubiquitous today, but their companies didn't take advantage of them. And that's one of the really fascinating things. So what is it that causes entrepreneurs to suddenly say, you know, enough's enough. I'm taking this and I'm going to do it myself.
1: I think it's being told no enough times. I've always been called a maverick. Corporate world doesn't suit me because it's too jacketed. I've been in corporate companies where it's more important to get the quarterly, monthly report to your manager than it is to actually look at innovative. So you said, you know, 60% of time by execs is going to be spent on IT. I would say in my time, 60% of my time was reporting, just fundamentally just box ticking and reporting. There wasn't enough breathing time to look around, to find the environment, to create something interesting, or even talk about it. So I think a lot of entrepreneurs find their straight into a company. Half the ideas that people come up with for entrepreneurship would never, ever, well, I'm trying to think of a good example of a company that's existed, that's changed its whole ethos on a, on a 6 I can't think of one at the moment.
0: I'm not sure whether they changed their ethos, but 3M seems to be very good at that. You see their innovation centre in Bracknell, And you go around there and there are 200 ideas that are works in progress. And customers come in, they co-develop product. And it's exciting going into an organization like that. I'm sure at a corporate level, they're still corporate. But the idea that you can foster that kind of innovation, you made a really interesting point that you need the freedom to be able to go off and think away from the hubbub because i've been spending a lot of time coaching over the last few years and what i find a common theme is when a company reaches a certain level what they tend to do is they tend to overstretch their people so they bring them in for a job and they're trying to scale very aggressively and so they end up piling more and more and more and more onto people and this is particularly in the middle management layer and They then stop doing the things that made them successful. They stop innovating. They stop debating. They stop. They don't have thinking time. In sales, they stop coaching. They stop training their people. They spend more of their time trying to squeeze data and reporting out of them. And that takes them away from their day job. So, what I'm curious about here is in terms of the personal qualities of the entrepreneurs that you saw back in the day in TechCrunch. What separated the ones who became superstars and were mega successful versus those who died on the vine?
1: Or was it just luck? I think luck has an element. Timing is maybe another word for luck. I think what you would find is that they were curious. They were laser focused on what they were trying to achieve. They networked very well because one of the things that VCs, venture capitalists, will always tell you is they will never really meet anybody unless they've made their inner circle of their network. So one of the things that young entrepreneurs need to do is get out there, meet the network, meet the people out there, work through the concentric rings towards that VC, make those relationships. But you know, you can always tell a good entrepreneur from a bad one. If they can't get their business Across to you in one line or two lines, they probably don't know their business. And so they're going to waffle on about some great idea that they've got that they think they're going to do. All of us have had ideas. Ideas are easy, it's execution of the idea that is the hardest part. And a lot of people don't execute very well. So a lot of people think, oh, I've got a great idea. You just do X and then Y. That's brilliant. How do I do that? Well, I don't know. Let me go and talk to a lot of people. Let me make a lot of noise. Let me go to lots of events and say I'm an entrepreneur. But the greatest entrepreneurs are the ones who actually don't do too much. Their time is precious. We all know as entrepreneurs, it's a seven-day, 24-hour-day job, generally, to get things started. I think Gates this week said he still believes that an entrepreneur should not have a holiday, at least for the first three years of their business. And the idea is that, you know, this is, is something that you, you've got to drive. There is no person behind you. In a corporate world, you know, I remember I said it's like cutting the umbilical cord. You come out. Okay, who's going to do HR? Who's picking up the uh, expenses reports? Who's to, No, you are that person. You are everything. And the people you bring on have to have that same understanding that all hands to the deck. I think too many, you said something earlier. Companies that start then begin to slow down. Why do they slow down? I observe you get professional corporateers join them. What happens is the HR manager who's comfortable in his or her job has just come in and they've got to justify the job. So now they've got to put 50 processes in place and bring all that. And of course, as the young entrepreneur they're going, "Oh well, I brought you in to you know, make my company more corporate because that's what we think we have to do. So suddenly this HR person's slowing it down. Then you've got someone else comes in. And suddenly that energy level of a company is just sucked out by professional corporate ears. It strikes me that it's at that point the mission, the purpose
0: of the business disappears. You mm. get swallowed up for some misguided impression of what a business ought to look like. And companies with a purpose tend to perform much better than companies without one. If you don't have a purpose, then typically you just become another widget commodity provider. So what I'm really curious about here is in terms of that curiosity and that laser focus,
1: how do they maintain the discipline of saying no? How do they maintain the discipline of saying no? I think you have that innate link. I think you have to learn to do that. If you say yes to everything, you'll suddenly find you do nothing you'll achieve nothing, you'll move forward nowhere because there are only a few critical things that you really have to do within the business. You have to make sure that I've always said to every entrepreneur that I've mentored, show me how you get 1P of profit, just 1P. What is that whole journey from acquisition of customer through to delivery and every process along that step and what's the cost model that you have? If you can show me 1P of profit, then it's very simple to inject cash into a business and turn that into a million or a hundred million pound business, because you now know every step of the way too often. And they still do it. In America, we still have companies. Slack, still not made money. If you look at Twitter, you look at half a dozen of these big companies are still not making profit. They're making revenue, but they're unprofitable. Uber still a massively unprofitable company. Why is it that we, as capitalist economies,
0: think it's okay to grow gigantic,
1: unprofitable businesses? What, what is it that drives that? Why do VCs fuel it? I think it's called the emperor's new clothes. So the VC model in the US, not so much here because the numbers are so much smaller, is very much, okay, we're going to find what we think is a winning business and we're going to pump money into it till it's really the only number one player in its market space. And then we're going to take that to market, profitable or not, and we're going to IPO it. And if you look at every one of the big IPOs recently, the VCs pile in, not just the VC who was the original backer, but all their VC mates, they all pile in on that pre-IPO just the round before it goes to IPO. Then it goes in at let's say, $55, and drops two days later $15, you know what? They've all piled in. They've all IPO'd. They've made a truckload of money. They've pulled their money out because I set the structure of that deal to allow them to do that. And then it's muggins like you and me who've come in later on in the round when we're not allowed that first investment round to invest in that. We'll have Facebook on our portfolio. or We'll have Twitter. That sounds really cool. But that's at the bottom of the curve when the, the initial profit's been taken out. And then we just have to wait and see whether that business turns the road or just drops off the market. And it's, it's the emperor's new clothes. They find a business to back. They all back it. They take the money out and they re- repeat and re- rinse again.
0: Jimmy Goldsmith famously once said, if you spot the bandwagon, it's probably already too late. The minute the retail investor is invited into the market and is tempted, that's the time to get your money out by the sounds of things. What I'm still struggling with is that this seems to happen time after time after time. What's it going to take for people to learn? Learn about? That it's a busted flush. I mean, it's great for the VC and it's great for the occasional founder, the one out of forty three that they throw money at that ends up generating lots of money for the stockholders. But it's not generally very good for the other 42 businesses that they've invested in their portfolio that are left to die on the vine because they suddenly pull the funding and they're not going to get to IPO because they just don't have
1: enough momentum behind them. I think there's a two-step market. Look, the rock star entrepreneur that's wheeled on the stage at these big events to tell you how great it is to be an entrepreneur, and aren't they fantastic because they're billionaires and they've done well and everyone lords them and sticks them on a pedestal. Right. You will still find those appearing, right? There's going to be another set of guys behind them coming along who will replace those. That will always happen. That's a model that exists. But of the 44 others, they're never going to get to that IPO. But the problem started in 1970 with Thomas Friedman, who changed the economic rule that said, actually, he said that we now need to focus on shareholder value as a corporate company. And the raison d'etre for a business changed. It suddenly became, okay, are we making quarterly profits? Are the shareholders happy? Are we returning the business? And every company changed overnight, practically, to that model. And of course, you're chasing the tail. There's no long-term thinking. Now, Amazon famously has not made a profit or returned a dividend, should I say, let's turn that. It's made a profit, it's not returned a dividend. It's reinvested its profits back into its business. It went, you know, sod the shareholders, they don't matter as much. We're going on a long-term journey. In fact, that's where Bezos has been most successful. You look at Chinese companies, they have a long-term vision. Absolutely. So what we are beginning to see, and it was on Question Time last night, the Iceland CEO time that we stopped the Friedman model of economics. It's time that we returned back to Capitalist 2.0, if you want to call it, a model in which people start to say, the value in what we do as a business is not purely profit, but it's about the society we function within, the return that we make to the staff that we employ, the environment. We've famously had it before. Cadbury's used to build villages. John Lewis is a partnership. There are different economic models that businesses can adopt. And I think we need to have them if we're going to have those other 44 companies that you talked about, just as an example, not be failures. There are better models.
0: I watched a really interesting TED Talk on the Good Country Index. And that was really fascinating as well, because... Ireland came out number one worldwide in terms of the good that it does in the world and how it's perceived. And what I find really interesting is Tamara McMillan, the exec director at Virgin yesterday, said something really poignant about that as well, which is that as a business, unless we are looking longer term, unless we're looking at that customer experience, if all we're doing is we're thinking about those quarterly numbers, you're going to fall into some really stupid traps and blind spots, one of which is pillaging your pipeline. And as a result, you get the deals in this quarter so that you take the pressure off, but you strip your pipeline out for the next two or three quarters. You discount in order to buy the business, which means your profits go down. So I see these mistakes happening all the time. I mean, there's so many blind spots that we see scale-ups. One is an entitlement mindset. It's where people think that they don't have to do things the way they need to be done. So, for example, veterans say that they don't need to go on training. Salespeople say that they're too busy to fill out the CRM or do their expenses. Managers don't think they have to turn up to the training that their salespeople are doing. They unaligned messaging from the top. In my experience, what you find where you have that unalignment or ambiguity is you end up with politics and politics is invariably a problem that starts at the top and ends at the bottom where it faces the customer because that's, that's where you start to create that friction with your customer base. You have all these different silos and so one of the things that I'd really like to explore with you is this whole process of a delicious frictionless customer experience across the organization, from your initial outreach in terms of your messaging, public content production, all that kind of stuff, through lead generation, qualification, the sales and buying process, the sale itself, the onboarding process, the experience that they have afterwards, solution development from there on in, the customer experience, the partner experience. What needs to change? so that we get away from this broken model, which serves only a tiny proportion of the people who are involved in it, and tends to leave an awful lot of destruction in its wake.
1: So I'll break that down into three parts. One is, you said it very clearly, pillaging the the channel. And you only pillaged the channel because of that quarterly demand on shareholder value return. And so that model has to change. Until you break that cycle, we will continue down that model of not caring about the two quarters forward. When we spoke before, we talked about building relationships, both from a sales perspective and from a marketing perspective. And if you don't have a relationship, there can't be a real relationship if what you're doing is saying to your client. Go bring that order forward, just bring it forward, putting pressure on them to put that money in because they've got their own pressures. There's no real relationship. That's a one-way position. The second one I'd say is in corporates, as they get bigger, you get thiefdoms. People suddenly get this desire to have an empire within the company. I was the e-commerce director at Gateway Computers who set up against Dell. I was brought in from Netscape to set up the internet side of Gateway. There was a guy there called Mike Maloney, very nice guy, but he owned Gateway. He was Mr. Dublin because it was a call center-driven business. Mr. Dublin, on a Friday night, could never buy a drink. Everyone knew Mike. So Monday morning, half of Dell would have resigned on the Friday night. They're at Gateway. On that Friday, they left Gateway and they went to Dell. And it was the way it worked. So I came in to set up an e-commerce business which meant that these guys on the call centers were going to lose their jobs you know, over time. And Mike's budget was coming to me. That was not going to happen. So Mike put every blocker in the way. The business got off the ground. But you know what? Gateway's not here anymore. Dell still is. And you know why? It's because Mike Maloney would not allow the e-commerce business to thrive at the cost to his call center business.
0: And this is a really critical point. Unless you are attacking yourself someone else will. And what you'll find is if you're not attacking yourself with willingness, then what you'll do is you'll compete internally. And I see this happen all the time. The number of companies that I've been engaged with, not necessarily as clients, but speaking to, what they wouldn't do is make that transition, make that change by attacking themselves because they hang on to what they've got. And they're afraid to let go of it. And so the way we define risk in Sandler is it's going from lower to higher value with the possibility of losing some or all of what you've got. Sacrificing is going from higher to lower value and there is no upside. And the challenge here, I think, is that we need to, as business leaders, we need to learn how to maximize our risk and be willing to lose recognize that failure is not a personality defect. And too often, that silo mentality and that quarterly reporting and that empire building and ego gets in the way of good business. So back to that conversation around the VCs, I have a a model in mind to work with VCs where we will actually work with their portfolio and help. Many of them, I'm not saying all of them, because some of them, they're never going to get off the ground and there will be a failure rate. But instead of two or three out of 40 or 45, maybe 15 or 18 of them making profit and then going for IPO. Why is it I come up against so much
1: resistance when I talk to VCs about that? Because they don't see the value. They don't see the value that it's a game of attrition for them they know that they put their money into 40, they'll get five returns that will cover their uh, returns back to their shareholders. And their shareholders are the pension pots, the large corporates who've, who've put money into the VCs. So the VC isn't in effect a VC in itself. It's a, it's a proving that give me your valuable pension money and I will turn that into 20x return. Now, the only way to do that is to spread bet, and that's what they do. They spread bet across the line, across different industries. Now, some of them will be very successful at doing that, and it just becomes reinforcing. So DFJS3, Accel, Index. And so why change that model? It's working for those. Now, let's take another point, which is if you've got the VCs in Europe and I said there was two different markets. The VCs in Europe do go for you have to have profit before we really inject money into you. They are even more short-term than the US. So one of the things we've talked about so far is that actually what people need to start to do is give themselves a bit of breathing space and look at time. That's what the Chinese do very well. And what we do in the West, we do exactly the reverse. So in America, the model where they pump hundreds of millions into startups. Look at Bird, the the scooter company now. That's had over 100 million thrown at that company. When will that ever return profit? Is it a business that can grow beyond very simply being just IPO'd on a big number? I don't know. I can't see the revenue growth sustainably over the future. But, you know, that's another matter. In Europe, the VCs wouldn't even get to that point. It's the reason we don't have a Google, a Facebook, a Twitter, a company of mega size, because Every European company has been asked to, oh, right, so you've got to this size. Are you profitable yet? No. Come back when you're profitable and put more money in. They just see it. even short-term, quarterly, yearly growth has to return to a profit. And a startup sometimes can't. I had a company called Bagsy. It was an online fashion company. And we were doing real-time price tracking, which was really hard across, across 22,000 websites in real time. That's a really technical challenge. I had a competitor in the USA called Wanalo. We raised a million in two rounds of funding using EIS. And I was really happy. We worked really hard. and We had to make every pound turn into 10. But my competitor got 10 million. Pinterest got 100 million. And the reason my company isn't here is because we couldn't get funding. Because I went to see a VC and the VC simply turned around, are you profitable yet? No. Oh not interested, and every door we went to, are you profitable?
0: This raises another really interesting question, because one of the things that I've seen happen when I've been talking to VC and private equity companies is that their portfolio companies achieve their R&D targets, but they don't hit their commercial targets, but they still put in another round of funding. Then they hit their R&D targets, and then they say, well, you know, it's a great idea, we'll put another round of funding in. And by the time they're at third round, they haven't made a profit because they're not focused on making sales. Why is that not part of the deal, that they have to invest in a good sales organization, whatever the methodology is, but something that actually gets you to meet and take money from customers?
1: There's a belief within the VC world, the customer acquisition and market share is more important than sales because the sales will follow. Their belief is, if you look at there's generally a winner-takes-all market, right? Or one, two, and three in the market. So Amazon's model was all about, we will become the biggest shopping online. We were unprofitable. We got to a certain stage. We've reinvested all our profit. And guess what? You know what? The dividends to you, Mr. and Mrs. Shareholder, will be down the road. But when we get there, it will be massive. You look at Spotify, you know, for years couldn't make money. Then it IPO'd, it's still struggling. But, you know, it's now found its level where it's got a significant market share and enough revenue being generated to become profitable. It's still a massively risky business because I think it's going to have um, challenges from what I call triple play. Now you've got Amazon with films, music, books, and delivery. You've got Netflix standing on its own with just film, Spotify on its own, and Apple coming in. So you've got competitors who are now offering triple services. So I fully expect Spotify and Netflix to merge, in fact, to stay alive, because I think both of those companies are in risk. But going back to your point, the point is I think companies in the VC world, the model again, whether it's the Emperor's New Clothes, is get market share, get customer acquisition, we'll fund the business through. Uber, for example, the taxi rides are all underfunded. So, for example, you know, as soon as they stop underfunding that business, what's going to happen? Are people going to be happy to take Uber rides or are they just going to have Pavlovian behavior that they've just got used to it? So, And there's no taxis left for any other business. So guess what? You've only got Uber left to take. Very interesting.
0: Okay, let's move on to this dark area
1: of web (laughs) 3.0 what is it fascinating old dinosaurs like me explain before we do 3.0 let's do 1.0 was great okay 1.0 was about taking us to the web making data free making accessible html was the lingua franca which made it common across all platforms right whether it was mobile phone laptop wherever web 2.0 I think was much more or or about making the data intelligent in terms of we had data processes like data warehousing what we do today crm and all those things web 3.0 now is about adding a layer of intelligence artificial intelligence or machine learning as it should really be called is all about taking data and injecting it with a bit more intelligence into it so AI or machine learning is not about predicting the future. It's not Mystic Meg. What it's really good at doing is taking historical volumes of data, the ones that we've acquired in Web 2.0, and actually saying, if we put an algorithm, a tree, a decision tree, that's fundamentally the bottom line. It's a smart algorithm that's an if, then, but, then what else, right? And that algorithm, however you, you write it, is your competitive advantage as a company, because no algorithm is the same. So what we're saying is we've got tools now that allow us to use machine learning that gives us the ability to take data at mass volume and manipulate it and get it down to something slightly more intelligible, right? Okay, so that's AI. Blockchain is another technology that simply says, in a sentence, it's about allowing data that's called non-repudiation, i.e. you can't change the record, okay? Once it's written, it's, it's sent, and it's distributed. But Web 3.0, for me, really, is all about taking the silos we've created in 2.0. Now, let me explain that very quickly. Web 2.0 was brilliant in that we created Facebook, Twitter, and all these companies. But what we did was we killed Tim Berners-Lee's vision. Tim Berners-Lee believed, I think and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the web should be distributed and it should be peer-to-peer and it should be not big and small, but everyone had a play in it, okay, and data was free to roam because it was a universal format. And what we did was we stuck all the data in web 2.0 back into these big silos and we started to build walls around them. There's a whole world of data now that's stuck inside of Facebook that isn't portable. So data portability doesn't exist. And we end up with the problems we have today, where one company owns market share and another one. Days when Twitter and Facebook even used to talk have gone. They've taken that capability away. Web 3.0 is really about the open web again coming back. Um, It started off with a lot of guys who were saying, look, we do need to change the way the web works. There's a couple of things that are happening. Let me give you some examples. There's a new file system coming out called IPFS, the Internet Protocol File System, which is to replace HTTP the current file system. And it's a distributed file system, which means that if you remember Napster, the good old peer-to-peer client, um, you can share files across a network, distributed network. Blockchain is a distributed database. Those Things are building a network now that we're beginning to slowly see occur, which is a distributed internet again. That's what we need. We need to break the silos of the web 2.0. And what problem is it solving? The problem is we've locked all the data back up into silos and that we can't use it. So, for example, your social graph on Facebook and mine or on LinkedIn is trapped in those silos now. If I want to start another social network or a, a corporate business network. I can't take my LinkedIn social graph, export it from LinkedIn and put it into another place. I can't do that. It's locked. Therefore, it's not my data. Therefore, it's not my social graph. Therefore, it's not my content. I'm just a right. product. Yeah, I'm the product because I don't pay for it. And, and fundamentally, I don't have value from it. One of the things
0: that I'm... Um, becoming clear on is that we have this volume of information and it's overwhelming and often it's essentially not mined for its true value. I think one of the most important lessons that I'm learning of late is that all this information allows us to identify patterns, patterns of behavior, Preemptive patterns that allow us to identify where a problem may occur for our customers so that we can eliminate it or raise it with them so that we can engage with them and let them know what we're doing in order to change things. And I think the most important lesson I'm taking from all of this is the technology is allowing us to ask better questions. But I think where most people are obsessed is in trying to find better answers. And I think that limits us. And certainly as a business leader, an entrepreneur, and an innovator, I think one of the most important skills is being able to ask better and better questions. Why is it that that isn't more central to the development of leaders and
1: managers? I think they're too close to the coalface. My background as an army officer, I was once told, what's the difference between a private and a general? And this officer put my face up against the map, and he literally said, can you see anything? I said, no, it's just very much, you know, I've just got a wall here. So he stepped me one pace back. I said, now can you see anything? I said, yeah, a couple of lines. He said, right, you're a sergeant. And he kept stepping me back until I was far enough away to see that it was a map. But it wasn't just a map of an area. It was a map of a town, a city, a globe. And he said, at every step back, you become higher up in your rank because you can see the bigger picture. And I think what happens is too often in corporate companies, they're still at the the wall. They're still too close to the coalface. They're still not stepping back to look at the bigger picture. So they can't ask the right questions because they don't even see the right problem.
0: Mike McAllowitz has a lovely, elegantly simple model which is doing, deciding, delegating, and designing. And what I find middle managers doing a lot is doing. They're making lots of decisions. And they're not delegating anywhere near enough. In fact, if anything, there's upward delegation, and they're spending next to no time, if any, on designing. And even CEOs, you find them stuck in that doing trap. And I I was speaking to a friend of mine I've known for years, and he's a specialist in turning stuff around. So he's worked in some of the most exciting and weird and wacky areas of the world. And his process is to meet people, to engage in a conversation about them, what they're trying to achieve. And then he steps back and allows it to percolate. And He networks within his own organization to understand what they're capable of doing. And then he goes back to the prospect or the customer and says, you know, I've been thinking about our conversation. I've got a couple of ideas that might work for you. And he generates seven, eight-figure sales um, off the back of this by simply allowing himself the time to ask the right questions and to have people engage and step away from the noise. And in fact, he has a very similar process to me in that my best ideas don't happen when my nose is stuck up against the map. They happen when I'm in the shower, whatever you do, don't visualize it. When I'm going for a walk, sorry, I couldn't resist. At this moment, Sam's just gone tailed. And it's in those created moments, the creative moments happen when you least expect them. And in fact, I interviewed a really interesting chap, David Slolly, a couple of days ago. And he has this fantastic approach, which, again, he took from James Webb Young. There is a book called Technique for Creating Ideas. And step one is gather up as much information as you can. Ask the who, what, when, where, why, which questions. Be curious. Adopt the mentality of an eight-year-old. And then get the first ideas out of the way. Kill your babies, basically, because the first ideas are invariably crap. Then forget about it. Allow it to percolate. Sleep on it. Allow your unconscious mind to come up with better ways of solving the problem. Before you go to bed, ask yourself a question and then just sleep on it. Have a notebook by the bed and be ready to capture ideas that come at you at the most unlikely time. My note function on my phone is packed because of ideas that occurred when I was watching my daughter at football or when I was watching Killing Eve or anything, you know, just something comes in and that's when you have to capture it. And once you've got those ideas, then polish the idea until it's fit for purpose. And I think this is where a lot of people fall down is they try and make it perfect I love the concept of the minimum viable product. Don't just produce something that's minimum and viable, but rubbish. Polish that. Make it fit for purpose. Make that something that's excellent, but not perfect. And then go to market with it. And I think too often we're procrastinating. We spend our lives getting ready to get ready. We waste an inordinate amount of time on the wrong end of the problem. Because what we're trying to do all the time is to get ourselves to the point where it's just right. And you look at those TechCrunch businesses, they were far from perfect. We should always be attacking ourselves. And we we are in a process of evolution. You're never the finished product. So let's finish off talking about Web 3.0. Where do you see that heading?
1: Web 3.0 is a technology. I think people get hooked up on it. I think. That's what I said at the middle, was data, and first generation, I said, we learned to free data up, so HTML, then we learned to index it with Google, then we learned to manipulate it and store it with databases, then we learned to socialize the data, then we've added AI to it, we've made it intelligent, now we're adding voice to it. So we're now giving it as a way of getting more data through that mechanism. 5G and Internet of Things will bring more data to that central pot. It'll give us a bigger, fatter, faster pipe to bring data in and out. It'll give us the ability to have intelligent devices at the edge that will allow us to do more data aggregation. You know, not everyone needs that data, so it depends on your business. But what I'm saying is we've got this sea of data and we know how to do things with it, but that isn't your business. Your business isn't the data. At the end of the day, it's what you've said before, and what a good friend of mine, Tara Hunt, said, from a sales business perspective, it's the relationship and how you improve that relationship. And from a marketeer perspective, it's the same thing. Tara Hunt said, content has no value. Social influencers have no value. Attention has no value. And everyone in the marketing world went, what are you on about? And she simply said, look, you can spend a budget creating content. You're Nike. You've got billions of pounds to spend on you know, making great videos. If you do that, of course, you'll get attention. Of course, people will listen to your brand and look at you and talk about you. But what happens when the budget stops, when the pipe's turned off? Do they still talk about you? Are you still memorable? Have you built a relationship of value that will take you further? Will that one pound of marketing budget return to 10 pounds of sales because you're not still pumping that, message out because people now believe in who you are i bet you harley davidson doesn't have to spend a lot of money on his brand because it built a relationship of trust with its owners and people love the brand and talk about it i think in all the conversation we've had today look there's an underlying technology escalator as i call it as we learn one thing the next technology moves further down so yes everyone now is what i call got buzzword bingo okay <laughs> oh, God, you know, if, you ha- if you're if you not doing AI or you're not doing blockchain or you're not doing something else that's 3.0 trendy, you're probably not going to get the door opened at a VC or you're not going to get invited on stage to talk about your cool thing that you're about to do. But that fundamentally is not going to make you a business. The other buzzword bingo is smart contracts. And we can talk about that if you want to At the end of the day, I think what we need to see is a change in the capitalist model, away from Friedman. We need to be away from these quarterly returns. We need to return to businesses that add value, that add value both in the relationship externally, but also internally to the people they employ. And I think there needs to be more time for businesses to grow rather than this short-term. Is Oh, well, if you haven't made a profit and you're not doing very well, right, that's it. Kill that business and start another one. Because businesses can like humans, evolve over time and grow and change and become better. Yeah, there will be bad businesses and they will have to go. But, you know, I think we are struggling with constantly, and technology has this same problem. Sometimes there's a technology brought out and it has no raison d'etre to be there. It's just because we can, right? There isn't a value add to that. So Bitcoin is a good example of a, business, of a technology struggling to find value. People are buying Bitcoins, and it's going up and down all over the place. It's at 13,000. Yeah. But that's because no one knows what to do with it. It's super smart the way it works, but no one knows what to do with it. And so there are times when I think technology gets in the way of business, and there's times when it actually changes a business. And it's the entrepreneur who can manipulate the value of new technology. Uh, to create a new business that will win. But I don't think technology is the be-all and end-all. My pal, Jerry Lemberg, used to
0: describe entrepreneurs as people who create elegant solutions to problems that don't exist. Yes. And there's an awful lot of that. I just want to finish up on uh, voice. You mentioned voice, and I know that it's an area that's very close to your heart. How is the application of voice technology Enhancing user experience and what impact do you see that having on the way we can use technology effectively to enable our businesses?
1: So, voice is just another channel to market along with everything else that we've got web, apps, email. They're not going to change, people will choose their channel. But what voice is very good at doing, it has a low learning capability. So, if you watch a child, you take You know, your example, when touch first came out and iPhones came out and iPads, you would see young children working out how to do that. They didn't need to go on a training course. Do you remember the horrible days of learning how to use a mouse and having to point the mouse at an icon on a screen and remembering? My dad, I mean, as an 80-year-old man, it was just impossible. Gave him an iPad, super, super simple. Had he been alive today and he had an Alexa or a Google Smart Home Assistant, well, I wouldn't have had to teach him. Just ask. Natural language understanding, NLU, is what the smart assistants use. So whether you say open or start or whatever, it understands the nuance of what you're trying to achieve. And so it doesn't have a singular path with DOS, the old pre-Windows command line thing. Unless you wrote it in exactly what the way the computer had to understand it, you had no chance, right? Windows gave us a little bit more chance because there was a random number of icons. Fundamentally, though, with voice, it is intelligent and will get much more intelligent to understand nuance, context. For example, Amazon's just got a patent out that can do voice understanding of whether how your voice is actually transmitting because it does a fingerprint of your voice. So it now knows that if you're feeling bad or got a cough, so it can suggest things. Now, that's a patent at the moment, but it's not available. But it's got this ability. Now, I was talking to David is Spitzky, who's the um, chief evangelist for Alexa the other day. They're talking about Alexa for business, Alexa for hospitality. So going into a hotel room, being able to have an Alexa there and say, turn on the lights. What's the telly? Tell me what's locally available. Book me a room. Get me a table. Those things are becoming fundamentally available they're already in certain marriott hotels going into a conference room ordering coffee having customers simply say do you know i ordered something from you the other day it was this widget can you reorder it for me and it's done not getting a form out finding it sending it because it has the ability so i think voice as a interface david called voice the HTML no, H, yeah, voice is the HTML of the internet. You know, it's um, again, it's that simple, it's everywhere. We know how to use it. I mean, in fact, Babel Fish, was where we might even get with it. Google, for example, has a live voice translation system. So if you were German and we were having this conversation over a smarter system, it wouldn't matter. You'd be hearing my German voice and I'd be hearing your English voice. Very Star Trek. Yeah, but it's okay. that pretty close to being there if it's not 100% there. You know, I talked about a company called Otter with you, I think, the other day. Yeah, I use Otter. And it's brilliant. Okay, it's not perfect, but when I do a Zoom meeting like we're doing now, it auto-transcribes that meeting for me, takes my voice, it auto-transcribes it, it uses AI, and now I can go and look at that transcription. So when we did ours, I think I sent you the transcription of our conversation. That was good. And it's indexable. It's searchable. I could find key quotes from you. And that was just AI mixed with voice. So the technologies are going to be there that will make things easier, faster, better. But it doesn't change the fundamental bottom line. It doesn't make it a business. Understood.
0: Tell me something. Books that you'd recommend. What are you reading, podcasts that you're listening to, apart from obviously your own, which you can give a
1: plug? <laughs> no, no, I don't self. It's, that's fine. Books. My favourite ever book is Viktor Frankl, In Search of Meaning. A man's Search for Meaning is just stunning. The best that's book my favourite ever book. One of my favourite authors at the moment is a guy called Scott Galloway. He wrote The Four Horsemen. He's just written a, a new book called Happiness. Scott Galloway is a professor in, in America. He basically is a great thinker, great speaker. I love listening to him. He's very exciting about what he says, but what he says has a lot of value as well. Certainly recommend looking up Scott Galloway. Excellent. And how can people get in contact with you? You can find me across all social media at Sam Sethi, so LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. You can find my Facebook group where my podcast is announced about who's coming up at uh, Sound Talks Technology, which is the name of the podcast. Yep. So, yeah. And if not, just reach out to me on email, samsethi at me.com. Wonderful.
0: Than- okay. So, final question. If you had a golden ticket, and you could go back and advise your idiot 23 year old self. What
1: one bit of advice would you give him? Be humble. Listen more. Be humble. Don't think you know it all. I think at 20, 20- 24, there I was. I was the ex-army officer. I thought I was the best thing since sliced bread. I was driving a big flash car, more money than I had since, more dates than I should have gone on. And yeah, I just thought I knew it all. And and later down the track, you know, and, and for, for five or six years, that person, that version of me wasn't being disproved. I was 30 and running Netscape's European product division. I was 35 or less, 33 running Gateway's e-commerce business. I I was on that trajectory to going where I wanted to go. And I suddenly realized one day I made a massive mistake when I was running TechCrunch. You know, I had every VC in London ring me up constantly. I was I was the go to person. I started a business off called Blog Nation where I couldn't raise the money. So I didn't know why. I thought I could bluster my way through. I, I was doing a Boris Johnson. If I'm honest, I was doing <laughs> you know, pretending to myself, lying to others, just not a nice person at that point. And I, I genuinely know that if I could go back to that person, the conversation I would have was. You don't know the answer ask for help do talk to others do do listen do learn be more humble and um, it probably would have been saved me a lot of time and pain that I went through after that but that time and pain also has made me hopefully a better person someone who realizes that everyone has value and uh, everyone has some interesting ideas you now, I was the worst social networking person you would meet in a room. I'd walk into a room, look at someone, work out, have they got any value in 30 seconds? If they haven't, I'd turn my back on them and then go and find the one I thought had value. And that was rude. And now I'd like to hope to think that I'm a bit more of a open person and much more of a listening person. Have you forgiven yourself? Not yet, but I'm getting there. So what's it going to take for you to make that leap and forgive yourself? That's a very good question. I haven't quite got there yet. I've got a... Do you remember the film, The Four Feathers? Yeah. I fundamentally feel like the man in The Four Feathers. I haven't quite got my feathers back. Do you have to join the Foreign Legion? Hopefully not. I've done my time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sam Seppi, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I hope that we get a chance to do this again. If you want to get in touch with Sam, please do. He's a fascinating man and a wealth of knowledge and ideas. And definitely check out Sam Talks Technology podcast. It's on Marlow
1: FM. It is. And it's on um, iTunes, Spotify and everywhere else. Yeah.
0: Okay. And some really interesting interviews on there and a really tedious one with me.
1: One of my better ones, I promise you, people, please don't let him do that to you.
0: Excellent. Sam, thank you so much. This is Marcus Kauke from the Inquisitor Podcast signing off. If you've enjoyed this, please like it, comment, share. And if you've got any ideas for podcasts you'd like me to conduct in the future or people you'd like me to interview, please get in touch. And if we're not connected on LinkedIn, please get in touch. My email address on there if you need it is marcus.kauke at com. Speak to you soon. Bye.